In today's episode, we'll talk about the writer's relationship to the reader. Welcome to episode three of The Chapbook. I'm your host, Noah Stetzer. And I'm Ross White. Noah and I are directors at Bull City Press, which is an independent publisher of poetry fiction and creative nonfiction where we focus on, wait for it, chapbooks. <laughs> we started this podcast to talk about our love of chapbooks, to demystify the publishing process, and share with you what's going on in the world of chapbooks. So Noah, I think we owe the people a small apology. We do. We've been bad. We've been terribly bad. We never said we were good. <laughs> so we <laughs> do have that in our favor. But you are correct. Noah and I are both poets. We tend to think in poetry terms. We tend to talk in poetry terms. We tend to make grand pronouncements in poetry terms. <laughs> that is very true. And unfortunately, sometimes that might leave out some of our listeners who are fiction writers or creative nonfiction writers or doing something in a hybrid form. And I just want to say that they're just as included in these conversations as our poets, wouldn't you say? I would say so. My gut feeling is that whenever we say poetry, if you're a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer or a hybrid writer, just substitute your genre. 98% of the time, it will be true. We're going to try to get some fiction chapbook authors and fiction chapbook editors on here. We're going to do the same with nonfiction. And so we'll have some episodes where that's really our sole focus. But today, I think we're going to talk in slightly more general terms about readers. Who is out there reading chapbooks? What is the relationship that the writer has to those readers? How do you craft a chapbook with a reader in mind? Right. I think one of the things that was something I learned early um, in crafting my chapbook was that the poems are starting to have a life of their own. Right. And I think I think I experienced that during the revision process where I suddenly realized a poem needed to go left uh, instead of right. And I kept trying to turn right. But in the revision process came to realize the left turn is what the poem needed in crafting the chapbook. I started to come to the same realization that the poems are now part of someone else's experience and not necessarily just my own. I don't tend to pay a lot of attention in the drafting process to the audience. If I'm working through an idea, if I'm playing with form, but eventually if I don't step back and respect the hell out of my audience, I don't have a finished product. It's like arranging an experience. It's, it's sort of like how someone in an art gallery will decide which paintings go in which order so that as you walk through the rooms one by one, you're following a predetermined sequence of images to sort of have an ultimate result. But maybe we need to step back a minute. Maybe we need to... Maybe we need to talk a little bit about the phrase, I'm just writing for myself. <laughs> well, okay. Well, tell me what you mean when you say I'm just writing for myself. Well, I feel like I hear this a lot. You know, I, I'm writing for me. My writing is not for anybody else. And I think that that is a completely valid form of writing. I keep a journal. That is not for anybody else. I would not want anybody else to see it. Occasionally, I will dip into my journal 
and what's in there might come out in a product that I'm hoping will be read by an audience. But the idea that you might be writing a poem for the self feels a little bit disingenuous to me. It kind of ignores, well, I mean, as soon as the poem gets shared with another person, right? As soon as the poem, like if you're writing for yourself, which I, I totally agree with what you've said, then it, it stays with you. But once the poem is delivered to another person or, or sent out for submission or, or published somewhere, it's for everyone else who reads it. And so, you know, it's, it doesn't really hold water once, once the work gets out. It's not just that it might encounter a reader on the date of publication, but once you've published something, in some ways it enters the record of literature and suddenly your audience is not limited to people who are on the planet right now. Suddenly your audience is 15 years in the future, 25 years in the future. Your audience won't be born for another 75 years. There's a lot you can't anticipate about the reader who hasn't been born yet and won't be born for 75 <laughs> years. But you could try. <laughs> well, I think at that point you are trying to say or do something that's related to the human heart, the human intellect, the human spirit. And therefore, you're trying to locate your work within a historical context, not just the moment that we're in now, not just the moment at which you're writing. But as a reader, you've been shaped by centuries worth of this conversation. You owe some debt to that century's worth of conversation. So does that mean I have to know a century's worth of conversation to enter into it? Yes, you have to read every book that's ever been published before you can write. No, obviously not. But you should try to read them all. <laughs> I think it's really important that writers are voracious readers. That should be self-evident. But not always practical. There is so much more to read than there is time in a life to read it all. But I do agree that when you're entering into the, the larger conversation, it is one in which your readers may have read much more widely than you have or that I have. And their associations with the things that I'm writing and putting forth may have some that I, I have no control over because I have no control over the other things people have read and what my writing might remind them of. That's true. But at some point, I think as a writer, it's really useful to imagine the ideal reader. I'm putting that in air quotes, ideal reader. Who is out there that you think is going to read your chapbook? Where are they when they encounter the book? Why did they even pick it up in the first place? They read the description on the back cover and thought, this is a book that I want to get into, or they just flipped open at random and read a poem or a paragraph and said, this is the book for me. I'm ready to come in here. What was it about them that got them hooked? Why did they pick up your book as opposed to any of the other hundreds of thousands of books that are going to be published this week? You know, I don't know that I've ever thought too closely about who my ideal reader might be. I, I think that I have been and still to a certain degree continue to be 
the kind of writer who is <laughs> my ideal reader is incredibly generous and compassionate and forgives me all my mistakes. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be nice? But I do think generous and compassionate is a really good way to describe a lot of readers of literature. I have found that people who are generous and compassionate are the people who have imaginations wide enough for empathy. And so they seek out books that will let them have a human experience as opposed to technical manuals. Yes, that's true. And I guess if I, if I thought about it a little bit more as I am now, my ideal reader is someone who is reading a lot of the things I'm reading right now, who is consuming a lot of the same poetry that is coming across my radar, perhaps has some experience with encountering ideas or forms and structures that I've encountered in poetry that I've read recently. And I think we have to acknowledge that our ideal readers are almost always going to be sort of colored by our own cultural experiences. I'm sure that when you imagine a reader for yourself, that person is reading in English, right? But I think that this conversation is really useful because when you are revising, when you're putting a book together, it's sometimes really useful to say, is it fair for me to expect a reader to know this? Is this information readily available in our current cultural moment? Is this information something they could quickly Google and find out? Like, I don't need a reader to know the painting if I'm writing about a painting. If I give them the title and the artist, I assume they can go find the image and then say, okay, now I know. But then, you know, there are times when I catch myself communicating an experience thinking, oh, everyone's had this experience. <laughs> and that's not necessarily true or fair. And that's when I get into trouble and I have to sort of step back and say, has, there, has that reader had this experience? And it's got to be somebody who's not me. Right. What you're what you're saying right now makes me think of when someone in front of me says <laughs> says to me, "Let me tell you about my dream I had." <laughs> and I and I um gird myself because in in the sort of straight retelling of a dream, sort of as it occurred to another individual, it is near impossible <laughs> to pass along sort of the emotional weight of everything that was happening in the dream because the dreamer is aware of all of those references. The dreamer knows the subtext behind what's happening in the dream and the implications of all of those things. Whereas me listening thinks this just sounds like a crazy person. <laughs> like I, I, I get that there are some very riveting visuals, but all in all, I can't really hook into the emotional freight of what's there unless the sort of overall concept of the dream is figured out and re sort of represented in a way that considers me. This notion that maybe the meaning behind certain figures in the dream, which in the written work we might call images or symbols. Mm-hmm that the symbolic weight would be only known to you makes the dream inaccessible to others. Mm. But there are certain meanings that get carried along with some images that do span distance or time. But I don't know that that's always true. And I, and I worry that sometimes 
those images, I don't want to count on someone having the same dictionary for images that I have. For me, I think I would, I would maybe challenge myself to find another way to, to get that idea across instead of hoping that the shorthand of this, what might be considered a common image, that shorthand might get misinterpreted. Well, I think that's where you really have to sort of vet how much do I expect my reader to know? You know, Elliot called this the objective correlative, right? The idea that an object that had sort of become a symbol would definitely carry this emotion along with it. And that might have been true for Elliot in the you know teens and 20s of the 1900s, but it does feel like our experience now is a little bit more fragmented and we're a lot more aware that not everybody's going to come with the same set of symbols with the same semiotics to the work. And ultimately, you don't necessarily need to be writing for every single reader who ever lived. And if your work is really sharp, really specific, really clear, even if it doesn't necessarily have some of the same symbolic meaning to a reader, it should still work on some level. It just may be a little less powerful. Right. There is the likelihood that if the work stays close to being honest and that the, the craft is rigorous, that even someone who who has a different life experience will be able to take something away from that work. So here's another thing that occasionally I'll hear, and that is I'm going to make choices for the editor because hmm. I just need the book to get taken. So I'm going to I'm going to make some decisions based on the press that I'm submitting to. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I've gotten advice both ways. I've, I've been given advice to arrange my manuscript in such a way that it takes into account the life of a tired, <laughs> overworked editor. So that advice has been, you know, put your, put your rock star poems at the very beginning so that you catch them because you can always reorder the manuscript later. But you want to capture an editor's attention, particularly if they're reading more than one manuscript at a time. But then I've also gotten the advice that says you want to put, put forward the most realized version of the book that you, that you can craft um, so that the, the in total experience is, is crafted as much as, as you want it to be. And that may mean having the poems in an order different than, than I described in the first example. I don't know where I fall. I will say more often than not, I like the idea of having work presented in as close to its final version that I think I want it to be in. And so I don't know that I've ever been all that keen on on front loading all the hot poems in the front, uh, especially at the detriment of upending some sort of structural idea that I'm trying to create in the book. I tend to think that formatting too carefully for an editor is usually a bad idea. You know, if you front load all the hot stuff, then eventually your manuscript's going to run out of steam. And the editor, they might pay a more careful attention when they first start reading 
But if you lose them over time, I just I think that's less valuable for a writer. I would far rather a book start slow and build to something amazing. And as an editor, sometimes it takes me a while to wake up to a book. I'm halfway through and I realize, oh, wait a second, this thing's been happening. As an editor, I get thrilled when that happens because I think, oh, readers are going to recognize this. But if if that manuscript had been formatted to try to get a few bangers early on, I, it wouldn't have that arc. And so I tend to think that the reader who's going to encounter the book, I need to sort of divorce the editor from that. And that's hard to do when you want the book to be taken, of course. But ultimately, I think that it's kind of a necessity. If you like the podcast, why not go ahead and click subscribe or better yet, tell a friend. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all the other major pod places. Every review matters for a new podcast like ours. So if you have a moment, let us know what you think. You can find out what we and our friends at Bull City Press are up to by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Bull City Press or visiting BullCityPress.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at DC Noah. And you can find me. I'm at Ross White. Next time on the podcast, we'll talk to Mag Gabbard, author of Minimal Palms from Cooper Dillon Press. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. 